I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of Live Wire is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving or cleaning, even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. And auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Welcome to LiveWire. I'm your host, Luke Burbank. This week, we've got a studio show for you. And what with the 4th of July being just around the corner, our theme this hour is freedom. And not just what it's like to be free, but what it's like to lose your freedom, which is precisely what happened back in 2007 to a college student named Amanda Knox. She'd moved to Perugia, Italy for an exchange program. And just a few weeks into her time there, her roommate a woman named Meredith Kircher, was killed in the apartment that they shared. You probably heard about this story back when it happened. It was very hard to miss. Hello, I'm Elizabeth Vargas, and welcome to 2020. All week, we're going to be taking a look at a murder mystery that is making international headlines. An American well, what followed was a very high-profile trial, complete with questionable forensic evidence and a lot of emotion on both sides. And eventually... A guilty verdict for Amanda Knox. Her sentence was 26 years in an Italian prison. I remember this story when it was happening, and I remember following it with sort of a combination of fascination and confusion. Um, Like Amanda Knox, I went to the University of Washington. In fact, I'd had a girlfriend who was in almost exactly the same exchange program that Amanda was in. But something about this case just never seemed to add up to me. Um, Amanda Knox wasn't a person who had any kind of history of violence, and this was a very violent crime. Um, They never found any of her DNA in the room where Meredith died. And then there was the question of motive. I mean, the Italian prosecutor put forward all kinds of theories, but nobody could ever come up with any kind of logical explanation as to why Amanda Knox would ever actually want to do something like this. Now, fortunately uh, for Knox, the Italian legal system has an automatic appeals process. And during her second trial, it came out that the scant physical evidence that the prosecution had presented had actually been contaminated in the lab where it was being tested. And this meant that Amanda Knox's conviction was thrown out and she was finally allowed to come home But she was still under this legal cloud. I mean, she could have actually ended up back in that Italian prison. 
up until 2015, when the Italian Supreme Court finally threw out the case for once and for all, citing complete lack of evidence and also blaming the media for stirring things up. These days, Amanda Knox lives in Seattle with her partner named Chris, a writer. That's what Amanda does these days, too, by the way. A few weeks ago, I headed over to their tidy olive green house where I met Amanda and Chris. Hey, Amanda. I'm Luke. Nice to meet you. And their three cats. So that is Mr. Screams because he talks a lot. And then there's Mr. Fats, the gluttonous one. And then there's Emil, who's named after my Oma's uh, favorite book growing up called Emil and the Detectives. I started off by asking Knox what it was like being in prison for nearly four years for a crime she didn't commit. So just on like on a very basic level, you're you're locked in a cell 22 hours a day. Did you have a roommate? I did. Um there was no distinction between people with long sentences and people with short sentences like they often do here, um, which made it difficult because the people with longer sentences lived the rhythm of the prison in a very different way than those who lived for short amounts of time. Those with short sentences could be more raucous, could be – could could push the limits more because it didn't really matter. They were going to be out in a year. For someone like me who was facing a long time, all I wanted was to be left alone in peace. And I just wanted to like get by just one day at a time. And and that often was a weakness in, in that sense for me, because that meant that I could be pushed and I would have I would be made to concede because all I wanted to be do was be left alone and to, and to not have someone scare me or try to fight with me. Um, I can see that this is still emotional for you to to think about and talk about. It's, I mean, the prison part is. I feel like I've had to wrap my mind around the trial part a lot. Um, and I'm slowly realizing that the prison part is the part that I have to work on now. Um, and it's helping to like dissect it little bit by little bit. Like I'm writing articles here and there talking about, you know, religious conversion pressure and, um, you know, sexual relationships between prisoners and, um, and being in the interrogation room and what that's like. And I'm, I'm slowly picking it apart piece by piece. Um, but I'm also realizing that there are still parts that really bother me that I numbed myself to while I was going through it out of necessity. Um, and, you know, years later, I'm still sort of picking apart where I've gone numb and I'm like touching it and trying to bring feeling back. Um, and thank goodness it hasn't like debilitated me. Thank goodness I can still like be attentive and, and, and interact with people and feel like I can relate to people. Like, thank goodness. Like I'm lucky that I'm able to do that. Do you feel like a few more years in there and you might not have been able to do that? I feared the entire time that the longer I was going to be there, the more my life was going to be 
my life and my psychology and my emotions were going to be unrecognizable to someone in freedom because the way that you live in captivity and the way that you psychologically process that kind of life and you incorporate that into your existence is utterly debilitating for a life in freedom. It's, it's a very different kind of strength that you achieve inside a prison cell, but how you then translate that strength into freedom is the great challenge of all exonerees. Did you feel like you were a particular target in, in jail because of your notoriety there? I was definitely noted and treated differently. Um, a lot of inmates did not like the fact that I was the famous one um, and that like I was the one who was on the TV every day and that everyone knew my story. Um, so were you at times sitting in the, you know, kind of group area uh, in the prison and then there's there are TVs somewhere and you're on those TVs? Well, so in my prison, we didn't really have a group area. We each had a television in the cell and everyone would watch and and we only had like five stations. And so everyone would watch the news at the same time and talk about it and, and read the newspaper. And so everyone knew about my case and everyone wanted to talk to me about it. And I never wanted to talk to anyone about it. So that must have been a, sur- a surreality placed on top of the completely surreal experience that you were already having. Yeah, the fact that everyone felt like they had a say and that their what their opinion was somehow mattered and should matter to me. Like, I mean, but understandably so, they felt like they themselves were forgotten in, in this system that abandoned them and that swept them under the rug without a second, you know, glance. So to for someone else to be gaining so much attention and for people to seemingly care about me, even if it's care enough to insult me on TV, like, or to, you know, there was one show where they were like divining, like they had a, a psychic put her hands over a picture of me and talk about how evil and, and possessed by Satan I was. Like, even that kind of attention was at least some kind of attention where the majority of them just disappeared into the criminal justice system and never came out, which isn't to say I'm not trying to demonize everyone who was in there um, because there were plenty of people who were kind to me and and who took care of me in their own way. Um, And I even made like a friend with an, an older American woman who eventually came into the prison whose name is Laura. But is she still there? No, no, no. She got out before me. And after she got out, she wrote me a letter every day and even in prison. So she worked in the kitchens in the prison. And every day that I went to court, she made me a special lunch bag to take to court because normally what they would give you when you went to court was just some bread. And she made me a sandwich and gave me some chips and put it in a bag for me. And she likes basically like snuck me real food to take to court with me. And, you know, that little things like that, or once, once she made me a chocolate cake on my birthday. I don't know how the, how the hell she was able to make a chocolate cake and she snuck it 
into my into my cell by wrapping it in a garbage bag. So so she couldn't officially bring it to my cell because she was in the kitchen. So she paid people who were cleaning the hallways in cigarettes to pass it to each other until eventually Sabrina, this young this young girl, like came up to my cell door and was like, Amanda, Amanda, quick. And I was like, what's going on? What's going on? She's like, just take it. She shoves this garbage bag into the into the room. And I'm like, what the hell is this? And she's like, it's from Laura. And like winked at me. And and then I opened it and it was this like, I mean, it was it was a chocolate cake that over the course of making it from the kitchen into my room, it kind of like toppled out of shape, but still it was a chocolate cake. And like she had shoved it through the bars. <laughs> it was amazing because like you don't you don't expect to have chocolate cake. Um, I certainly didn't. Um, and to think that, you know, someone thought went through the trouble of making me feel special on my birthday when in the prison environment the days bleed by and and you don't matter did you have to come to a point while you were in in jail that you thought okay if this is where i live the rest of my life because had you not won on appeal I mean, you would have been there for at least 25 or so years was the initial sentence? 26 years was the initial sentence, and then they raised it to 28. So did you get to a point where you were able to make some peace with that? Were that to be the outcome? Hmm. Um, peace is not the word I would look for, but yes, I had to come to an understanding and acceptance of that. Um to to my mom's great dismay, um, I um, thought, like many innocent people, it turns out, think that no matter how bad things were going in my trial, there was no way that I could be found guilty because I wasn't. And I went, you know, two years naively so sure that because we live in a society where freedom was gained for us by other people's sacrifices, at the very least, if I'm innocent, then I deserve my freedom. And when I was found guilty and that assumption of mine that my innocence was necessarily connected to my freedom, when that all came crashing down, there was no other choice for me. I had to understand that this was not a causal relationship. You could be innocent and also in jail for 26 years. Totally. Um, and I know that it costs so much to try to get back what a lot of us, what I just assumed was something that I could take for granted always. Coming up, Amanda Knox on what it's like living in a world where complete strangers think they know you. I know that ahead of me, walking in front of me, is their idea of me. And in, before I can interact with another person, I'm going to be interacting with their idea of me first. And they're gonna, I'm going to be measured up against their idea of me, whatever that idea is. This is Livewire from PRI. I'm Luke Burbank. We've got a studio show for you this week, and we will be right back. Hey there, podcast listeners. 
Special thanks this week on LiveWire to a couple of extraordinary LiveWire members. That's right. I'm talking, of course, about Susan Nosaka of Portland, Oregon, and Hazel Valdez of Portland, Oregon. Thank you for supporting LiveWire, Susan and Hazel. We could not do this show without you and lots of other people like you. So we very much appreciate it. Thank you so much. We will be back in your podcast feed in just a matter of weeks with a special kind of a mini edition of LiveWire. So keep an ear out for that. Uh, for now, though, let's get back to the show. Welcome back to LiveWire from PRI. I'm Luke Burbank. We've got a studio show for you this week. Our theme is freedom, what with the 4th of July being right around the corner. Let's get back to our conversation with Amanda Knox, who as an American college student back in 2009 was falsely convicted of murder in Italy. She spent almost four years in prison before finally being acquitted. But she wasn't the only one being denied her freedom because her family was trapped as well. Uh, Sometimes I think that it was harder on my family than it was for me because I had the benefit of going numb, I suppose. Um, There was only so much that I could do. They had the burden of needing to do something and not knowing what to do. There there were so many different roads that they could have taken, so many different choices that they could have made, and all of them could have resulted in devastating consequences for a person that they loved. And that burden was tremendous on them because the entire family's resources, like financial, emotional, physical, even just their physical being around was dictated by what was happening to me because at any given point throughout my imprisonment, at least one family member was in Italy to visit me. And trying to wrap their minds around their own trauma surrounding that was complicated by the sense of guilt they felt at feeling traumatized by something where the person who should feel traumatized, in quotations, should be me, right? Because to have any kind of complicated feelings is then to wonder, well, do I love my daughter enough if I'm mildly annoyed at at some of the things that are happening, be it financial, otherwise, it's life upending. But to even have that thought go through your head, then you probably feel bad. Right. And like them not telling me when they were suffering because they felt like they couldn't tell me because that would somehow add to my burden to know that my burden was becoming their burden because their job was to alleviate my burden. And that was really hard. Did you have any sense of of guilt when it was all said and done, regardless of if you did anything to bring this on yourself, but Mm -hmm. just to know that people would do all of this stuff for you seems like it could be something that would be almost hard to accept, almost hard to wrap your mind around. Yeah, it was very difficult, especially when I was in prison. I wrote so many letters just to try to feel connected to them, and not just for my sake, but also because I wanted to give them as much of myself as I could as I was being kept from them. I have struggled since coming home. I've struggled to 
gain a sense of myself back or a sense of place or a sense of purpose. Um, and that's always been very difficult on everyone because everyone just wants me to succeed and be happy and get my life back. Um, and it's been a little bit difficult because, you know, they also hoped that the person who I was before all of this happened to me would be the person who would come home and that I would be happy Amanda again. And like, I am a very happy person. I am obviously still the same person, but I'm just a, a much more complex person now. And I think sometimes that makes them sad, but the best thing that I feel like I can do is to give myself to them fully and honestly um, and to be there for them now. Are you able to go places and live in the normal world here in Seattle or are you still recognized a lot? Is it still something that makes it hard for you to just kind of live what we would consider to be a normal life? Mm. Well, it's definitely not like the first few months since being back where like I couldn't walk out the door without getting swarmed by paparazzi. But now, yes, I can I can go about my life and I can go to the store and I can go to the movies. That doesn't mean I don't get recognized. Um, I get recognized a lot, but it doesn't inhibit me because that's just part of my existence now. Like I know that me walking into a room of new people, I know that ahead of me walking in front of me is their idea of me. And in before I can interact with another person, I'm going to be interacting with their idea of me first. And they're going to, I'm going to be measured up against their idea of me, whatever that idea is. And it always has to do with this thing that happened to me, not something that I did. I, I think the only negative feedback that I get, um, you know, the kind of like death threats and the nasty commentary all comes online. Um, the people are very kind to my face. And in the meantime, I can still have real relationships with people. It doesn't inhibit me from having real relationships. Um, I mean, I'm have a relationship with my partner here who I met after everything happened. Um, How did you guys meet? Uh, he wrote his novel and I read and reviewed it and then asked for an interview. And so he invited me um, to come over to his apartment and I hung out with him and his co-writer who was his, also his best friend. And uh, we talked and we drank scotch and we watched Star Trek. And then we ended up like wandering around the neighborhood into the night. And at the end of it, um, I shook his hand and, and he said, we should be friends. And I was like, okay. <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, months, months later, life circumstances changed and we started dating and, and we've been together ever since. Chris, did you make an intentional point to not bring up any of the Italy stuff when you first met? Uh, definitely. I wanted to see who she was as a person, um, not who the story was. And I didn't ask about that. If she brought something up, I would listen. Um, but I didn't press. And it was months and months um, into our relationship until I actually read her book um, because of course, it is a big part of her life. And in order to know her on a very intimate level, I would need to be intimately familiar with everything that happened in Italy. But I didn't want that to color my first view of her. I wanted to see who she was now, um, who she wanted to be, what her dreams were, uh, not who Foxy Noxy was. 
That would have been an extremely bad opening line for you, I think. <laughs> like, we would not all be here together, the three of us. I don't, I don't get the sense. I, I agree with that. Um, I think she does, too. Yeah, that would, have, that would have put a... I mean, I would have still done my job, and I still would have interviewed you, but... At this point, do you seek out new people, or do you, um, in terms of friendships, or are you a little bit hesitant about that because you do have to work through their conception of who you are? It's very likely that they would know the name Amanda Knox. Well, honestly, um, I find out pretty quickly who my people tend to be because um, they're the ones who don't launch into a thousand questions um, without any consideration of how I might be experiencing that initial moment. So really, it's kind of a bittersweet thing where I found out very early on what kind of person they are based on how they're reacting to me. I'm sure there are still a lot of people, particularly in Italy, who think that you were somehow involved in this crime. How do you make peace with that? You know, I mean, this is just going to be something that some people think about you and there's nothing you can do about it. Um, I feel like I already had to make peace with that fact when the conviction came down because I realized that for many people, this isn't about me. It's about them projecting their own experience and fears and anxieties onto reality. The idea of the femme fatale or the girl gone wild is so seductive to many people. And so not just seductive, but but it it means something to them. Like their their experience of reality necessitates that something like that find itself in existence and and be personified. And for many people, that's what I represent to them. I'm curious to know why, why that is me necessarily, but I think it has less to do with me and it has more to do, it ha- It says more about the person who thinks that of me than it says anything about me. I also understand how the criminal justice system and the media wreaked havoc on my case and made it possible for anyone to believe anything if you read the right news stories or you or you overlooked this document versus that document. I mean, even in the court system, like a judge writing down that my motivation for committing a murder was that I felt like being evil that night. Somebody wrote that. Somebody in an official capacity wrote that. And then somebody else in a higher official capacity had to call bullshit. But those are all people making those same mistakes. And where those people are coming from when they make those mistakes is what interests me. And I feel like it has not a whole heck of a lot to do with me, um, which is kind of a relief and kind of the saddest thing about my existence, that so many people feel so much about something that has nothing to do with me. Some people want me to be a bad guy. And I'm curious to know why. But at the same time, I also have to go on with my life, and I'm going to, whether they want me to be the bad guy or not. I'm not going to live up to their expectations. Do you feel like you appreciate your freedom still on a day-to-day basis? I mean, I'm grateful to even be alive, because like what happened to Meredith could just as easily have happened to me, and our roles could just as easily have been reversed. Um, she just happened to be home that night and I wasn't. 
So I'm, I'm grateful to be alive. And every time I look around me and I find myself in a safe place, I feel grateful. Um, and I'm like, I'm grateful when my cat comes and sits by me and I have a cat who's a mama's boy. <laughs> and like, that's so cool. Um, I feel like gratitude is a much bigger part of my life now. Um, cause I didn't win my freedom. Other people gave me back my freedom. Amanda Knox here on Livewire. These days she works as a writer and also as an advocate for the wrongly convicted. It's Livewire from PRI. My name's Luke Burbank. We've got a studio show for you this week. Our theme is freedom, which is something a lot of people are seeking when they head out on the open road. And in fact, I was one of those people recently. Here's what I did. My buddy Andrew and I rented an RV in Seattle, Washington, and then drove it all the way to Austin, Texas. And what did we find when we got there? Well, none other than Alejandro Rose Garcia, better known as the singer Shaky Graves. We got together with him at a little live event at Stubbs Barbecue in Austin, and he played us a song. Here's what it sounded like. Burn down your home 
around and give you sour dreams. Yeah, try to forget all them enemies and debts. Who they'll just chase you around and give you sour dreams. The truth is, who really knows? Yeah, hey, who really knows? Yeah, hey, who really knows? Shaky Graves, live from Austin, Texas at Stubbs Barbecue, right here on Livewire. we got a special studio show for you this week. You want to find out more about Shaky Graves, you can head over to his website, shakygraves.com. This week's show is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines, an airline with over 800 daily departures to over 100 cities, even to tropical, un-Alaskan lands like Costa Rica and Hawaii. And with a name like Alaska, you know their air conditioning is going to be on point. Alaska Airlines. Fly nice. It's Livewire. I'm Luke Burbank, your host. Our theme this week is freedom, which is something director Justin Simeon has had a lot of creatively in his still young filmmaking career. But he has really earned that freedom with the breakout hit Dear White People, which has a 100% rating on Rotten Tomatoes and was also the toast of the Sundance Film Festival. He's followed that up with a Netflix show of the same name, 
which follows a group of students, many of them African-American, as they attend a predominantly white college. Now, we recently got Justin to hop into a recording studio in L.A., and we dialed him up to talk about the show. As I was uh, about to have this conversation with you, I typed your name into my computer, and I actually (laughs) printed out the top one, two, three, four, five search results that came back when I put Justin Simeon in, and they were... Oh, Lord. From NBC News. (laughs) Justin Simeon's Dear White People brings conversation about race. From the Daily Beast, Dear White People creator Justin Simeon to racist trolls. Uh, GQ.com, Dear White People creator Justin Simeon, being black means... I don't have the whole thing because it's on the internet. I just have the headlines, right? But I could go on. And the dot, dot, dot. Are you tired of talking about race yet? (laughs) You know what, man? I I don't think any black person isn't tired of it, but it's like you got to do it, though. It's like if you're not part of the conversation about it, then you're left out of the conversation. And that, for us, can sometimes be fatal, not to get real serious at the beginning of this, but uh, that's just kind of the that's kind of the price to, of admission, especially, you know, if you got a show called Dear White People. Uh, I, I would expect that anybody who had the balls that come up with that title would talk about it. So, you know, it's it's all right. I'll take it. How do you describe the show? Well, I think the show is, um, first of all, it follows a group of black characters at a mostly white Ivy League uh, college as they try to sort of navigate their identities on this campus. And it's also, in in following these characters, a kind of satirical look at race relations um, in the country and by extrapolation the world right now. And uh, all, all the ways in which, you know, legitimate voices are somehow drowned out by uh, this kind of culture of complaint and, you know, safe spaces and <laughs> triggering and, and all of that kind of stuff, especially this first season. It, it really it really is to do with like, you know, in the 21st century, if you're trying to lead a legitimate movement and, and, and shine a light on marginalized communities, like how do you even really make ways when everyone has something to complain about and everyone has a movement and everyone feels oppressed, whether they are or not? Uh, we sort of take a a kind of look at that. And what's so funny, man, is that, like, so many of the trolls that come after me, they feel the same way as my characters do. <laughs> they really do. Right. And I actually think that would they would relate to them a lot. <laughs> would it be insulting if somebody described the show as a really smart soap opera that also happens to touch on kind of the realities of being a person of color in, in America these days? No. I, I think that's a really good description of it, actually. I think it's a little deeper than that, but yeah, it's a total soap. I mean, these are kids and relationships and in that sort of like age where you'd have no idea really who you are or what you like, but yet you adamantly defend <laughs> your position on things. And so, yeah, they're getting all into all kinds of sexy trouble, which I think is fun, frankly, just as an audience member. Yeah, as I was watching the series and kind of reflecting back on all the twists and turns, uh, for those who might think so, it's not just something that is supposed to create a ton of complicated feelings about race, but is rather a show about people living their lives and cheating on each other and doing things that they should do and shouldn't <laughs> do. And it just so happens that a lot of them are people of color, but it just feel like that sometimes yes. the narrative around the show seems to focus so much on the other stuff that people may lose sight of the fact that it's a fun show. Yeah. At, the, at, at my heart, you know, I'm a storyteller. So just trying to tell a, a compelling story about people that you care about 
that's the thing that gets me up in the morning. I mean, I do think that the show has a lot on its mind, and certainly um, because these are characters of color who live in the 21st century and are attending a college that, you know, demands that they have an opinion on things, a lot of the stuff that's on their mind happens to be the stuff that we are dealing with in terms of race and ideology and stuff in this country. But yeah, you're right. I mean, the driving mechanism of each episode, you know, kind of by rule of law in the writer's room is that we um, are telling a personal story about this character's journey uh, in life, period. And the race politics stuff is just part of the fabric in which these kids live because that's what it's like to be, you know, a black person that's opinionated and (laughs) well-read these days is that, you know, you can't really escape racial politics. You sort of have to decide to be a part of the conversation or actively avoid it, but it's there. Um, When the trailer came out for the Netflix version of Dear White People, uh, there was some amount of pushback on it. And some people were saying that it was racist towards white people. Is racism towards white people even a possible thing in your mind? Well, it depends on how you define racism. If you think that racism is like the same as bigotry or like hatred towards someone because of their race, then yeah, black people can be racist. I happen to think that definition of racism is pretty limited and outdated. I prefer the definition of racism that describes a system of disadvantage. And the reason why I prefer that definition is because prejudice and um, bigotry, which are both terrible, They're not the same as systemic oppression, and systemic oppression is a really horrible thing that we as a supposedly free nation are still kind of bearing the weight of. So in that sense, no, I don't think a white person can be systemically oppressed because of their whiteness. That is not a thing that I think exists uh, in any way, shape, or form in this country. So, you know, I also, I get into a lot of trouble saying that black people can't be racist, but in that sense, I don't think that we can be. You know, we can be bigoted and we can be mean and all sorts of other fun things, but, uh, you know, we don't really hold the power in this country. So, you know, racism, you know, lucky for you, is not a thing that white people actually have to endure. Um, this is the first that the audience is who... learning I'm white, by the way. So this is, they're going to need a moment <laughs> to absorb that. Spoiler alert. Um, (laughs) But I think, uh, you know, that's a hard thing for people to take because I think the knee-jerk reaction is to take that personally. Like, you know, how dare you be the only one that can be oppressed in this country? I don't know. But it's true. I mean, statistically, it's true. I don't know if this is true. I read it, uh, I think, on your Wikipedia page, which could just be somebody trying to troll you. But they said Mm -hmm. that the trailer for Dear White People for the, again, the Netflix series, um, that it had way more like thumbs downs than thumbs ups because how it got kind of caught up in this internet fight. Does that tell you that what you're trying to do is working or is that dispiriting? It's both. Um, It tells me that, A, obviously, like I've struck some kind of nerve. But, you know, the truth is on these YouTube things, um, they're really easily sort of trolled or sort of hacked by these kind of robot accounts. And that part of it is very dispiriting because people who don't like it that folks that look like me have any kind of platform, you know, they have a mechanism by which to suppress the things that we have to say. And that is dispiriting because it's just proof that, you know, there is a form of oppression that applies to me as a black creator um, that doesn't apply really to other people. And um, it sucks that I, that I have to deal with that every time I do something. Because the truth is, is that the show um, 
isn't one, it isn't about white people, <laughs> interestingly enough. Um, and it isn't, it certainly isn't about blaming white people for anything. That's just one, I think that would be a really, really boring show. And um, it's just not, it's not my heart. That's not what I have to say. And to be kind of woefully or and or willfully misunderstood in that way, I mean, it, it's not fun, but it also... It's the price of admission. If I'm going to be a black artist in this particular country, in this particular time, saying the truth about the black experience and not expect um, pushback from people who don't want to hear that, you know, I'm I, I'm being very naive. <laughs> so, you know, it is it is both proof of the concept of the show, but it also is, you know, it kind, they kind of get in there a little bit. Uh, how can you not feel that? That's filmmaker Justin Simeon. His Netflix show is Dear White People. Now, coming up, Justin will talk about what keeps him motivated. I sort of have that mentality that if I stop working, I'll just sort of fade away into obscurity. Don't go anywhere. It's Livewire from PRI. We've got a studio show for you this week, and we'll be back in just a moment. Hey, did you know that Livewire gets support from Fully? In fact, we've gotten support from Fully for years and years. They used to be called Ergo Depot, but now they're called Fully. They're growing by leaps and bounds. It's actually really fun to see this Portland small business grow with Livewire over the years. And they got a special deal for Livewire listeners right now. If you go to fully.com slash Livewire and use the promo code LIVESUMMER, that's one word, LIVESUMMER, you're going to get 10% off of any purchase. A purchase of what, you ask? I haven't even told you yet. Here's what Fully does. They promote a healthier way for you to do your work. They make chairs and desks and stools and all kinds of furniture and devices that will help you stay engaged and in motion when you're being productive. Don't just slump in some old office chair and turn into a potato. Do what I do. Sit on the TikTok stool. I'm sitting on one right now as I record this. It keeps my core engaged. It keeps the blood flowing to my brain. It keeps me super creative. I mean, can't you just hear the creativity coming out of me right now? Fully has also outfitted the offices of Livewire Radio, and so all of the Livewire staff, they get to use these Jarvis sit-stand desks. We're just a happy, healthy bunch, thanks to Fully. And you can be, too. Again, they got a sweet deal going right now. If you go to fully.com slash livewire, in the month of June, and use the promo code LIVESUMMER, that's one word, LIVESUMMER, you're going to get 10% off any purchase at checkout. Huge thanks to Fully for supporting Livewire, and huge thanks to all of you for supporting our friends at Fully. Welcome back to Livewire from PRI. I'm your host, Luke Burbank. we got a studio show for you this week. Our theme is Freedom. And we're talking to filmmaker Justin Simeon. His Netflix show is Dear White People. Is there um, a kind of a feeling of catharsis or relief for yourself and for the, the other writers and the actors and, and other technical people working on the film uh, and the TV show to be working in an environment that has way more people of color than a typical Hollywood production would have? I mean, I, I certainly hope so. As... Uh, the creator of the show and one of its primary directors and writers, I certainly wanted to create that environment, um, both in my writer's room and with my cast and, frankly, with my crew, that, you know, finally you get to come to work and just 
be you. Like, what I'm looking for is your humanity. I'm looking for the best of you, for you to bring that to your work. I'm not necessarily looking for you to fit this sort of idea that I have of, about you based on your race. But the, the sort of truth of it, man, is that this town is so systemically racist that even a show like mine isn't fully protected from it. I mean, you feel it, you know, it's... it's like it's, how? You never quite... Lo- well, you never quite get over the fact that people perceive you and the show as a certain thing. Um, there's a lot of people who will never see the show but hear the title and, and look at the people that are making the show. And we operate in the world where those people are still in charge in a lot of ways. And, you know, this is not specifically like my production company or my network, but we all are existing in this ecosystem where black shows are still in a separate category in the minds of a lot of people. And it's you feel it in really subtle ways and you feel it in really big ways and you know, some of which wouldn't probably be politically uh, good for me to even discuss in <laughs> okay. great detail. Sure. But it's there. It's there. You never, you can't really ever quite escape it. But even that is kind of interesting because it's there's always an opportunity to put it into the work and to comment about it into the work. You talked about catharsis. There's great catharsis in being able to just do that, just sort of articulate a kind of pain that's hard to articulate, but to put it in a story and have, you know, someone see that story and get it too. I mean, there there is something very satisfying about being able to do that. We're talking to Justin Simeon, creator of Dear White People, the Netflix series, which also is a film. Uh, It's set at Winchester University, follows a bunch of students there, uh, largely African-American students who are in an overall kind of white school environment. Are you enjoying making this as a TV show as opposed to having made it as a film is one thing harder than the other? Um, I think a TV, well, uh, hard to say. I mean, independent film is like the hardest thing ever. So making the movie, yeah, no, that was harder. Mostly because I didn't have the time or the resources, um, not even close to the time and the resources that I wanted. And so um, just the pressure of delivering and paying like, as much care to the vision as possible under these really dire and unyielding circumstances. That was hard, but the the TV show is longer. (laughs) It Mm. takes a lot longer to make a TV show, so it requires more endurance. Um, But what I do love about the TV show is that there's just so much of it that's just the part that I love. Like, you know, I love the storytelling part. Like, the managing part is cool. The talking about it part is fine. But actually, like, telling the story and picking the camera angles and hiring the cast and hiring the directors, like, that part I just love. And there's long stretches of just that part in doing TV. So, you know, I really, I really, really enjoyed making the show. I I was just so darn proud of it that, honestly, it sounds really Pollyanna-ish, but, like, at the end of it... I didn't care so much about what people would think of it. I just really loved it, and I loved what we made, and I was so proud of it. You know, it that that experience, you know, as a storyteller, it doesn't really matter to me if it goes in theaters or on TV. I just getting the like the canvas and the opportunity to tell a story. Man, that's, that's what I was born to do. I just love it. I really do. What's a dream project for you? Like something that you would just absolutely love to make. Um, well, I, it's definitely a dream for me to do a musical. I think musicals and science fiction, sort of like uh, soapy science fiction epics, like those are the genres that I most loved as a kid. And to really do a project in either of those genres would be really thrilling because I've just I've thought a lot about them since mm-hmm. I was a kid. And there's a lot I want to do 
in those fields that I don't see anybody else doing, and I just want to get to it before someone beats me to it, you know? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, either one, honestly. But particularly the musical right now, I just I think it's, uh, it's making a comeback, culturally speaking, and I just think it's a really, really powerful form of storytelling. And I've just been, you know, the stuff I remember as a kid is like, you know, Little Mermaid and Beauty and the Beast. Like, those were my first, like, major cinematic experiences. So to work in that would be literally a dream come true. Well, I mean, um, do you know yet if there's going to be another season? I do not know. I know that the network really loves it, and I know that audiences love it and critics love it. Um, So I'm hopeful that we'll be back, but as of today, I, I don't know either way. What's that like what to will happen? pour your heart and soul into something and be really proud of it and also kind of just be, I guess, what, waiting for a phone call or your agent is waiting for a yeah. phone call? You know, it's a little awkward, but I'm I'm actually good because um, I sort of have that mentality that if I stop working or I stop doing something, I'll just sort of fade away into obscurity. Like, I don't think that this may not even be true. I, I'm willing to admit if this is not true, but I do feel like as a black director, like if I just stop talking for a second, like I'll just go away and never come back and no one will ever remember anything that I did. So I'm, I'm always writing something. There's always several things in development at once. And so... You know, even though I'm not actively working on the show, I'm still working on things. I'm still trying to bring new things up. Um, But, yeah, I would love to get that phone call, though. I'm not going to lie. Great job on the Netflix show. (laughs) I'm really enjoying watching it. Thank you. And I look forward to talking to you again, man. Good luck with everything. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Justin Simeon here on Livewire. Dear White People is available on Netflix right this minute. You should go check it out. All right, that's going to do it for this week's episode of Livewire. A huge thanks to all of our guests, Amanda Knox, Justin Simeon, and Mr. Shaky Graves himself. Livewire is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines and fully hotel accommodations, generously provided by Provenance Hotels. Robin Tenenbaum is the executive producer and co-creator of Livewire. Laura Haddon is our producer and editor. Becky Fogel is our associate producer. Special thanks this episode to my pals, Andrew Walsh and Amy Walensky. Lauren Masterson is our development director. Laura Harden is our marketing director. Tim Harkins is our operations manager. Additional funding provided by the Oregon Arts Commission and the James F. and Marion L. Miller Foundation. Livewire is made possible by the generous support of our members. Special thanks this week to member about the show, how to listen to our podcast, or how to sign up for our newsletter. Visit livewireradio.org. I'm Luke Burbank. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next week. Public Radio International. Wouldn't it be amazing to have a piping hot episode of Livewire delivered right to your heart and ears each week? Well, guess what? That can happen when you subscribe to the Livewire podcast feed and you'll get the joy of surprising conversation every week. So go ahead and do it. It's super easy. You click on the button at the top of your podcast app and bam, you are Livewire subscribed. And if you're still, you know, feeling the love, if you're enjoying the show, hey, maybe you could hook us up and uh, leave us a quick review. That'll help more people find out about Livewire. And thank you.
PRX.